tuned to more Coney Island on WFMU. I'm your host, Devin Levins, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. This week is no exception. We have joining us special guest, Josh Siegel, curator in MoMA's Department of Film, gearing up for MoMA's 35-plus film retrospective and associated with Chinachita Rome's Ennio Morricone starts on December 1st and goes through January 10th at the Deborah and Leon Black Family Film Center there at MoMA on 11 West 50. Third Street in Manhattan, of course. The retrospective will be spanning uh, 35 plus films in his nearly 60 year career, 17 new digital restorations, as well as 35 millimeter archival prints. Everything from his most renowned scores, of course, all five of the Sergio Leone collaborations, including the Man with No Name trilogy and Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America as well as John Carpenter's The Thing, Roland Joffe's The Mission, Bertolucci's 1900, and uh, Giuseppe Torres, of course, kicking it all off, Cinema Paradiso. And there will also be a lot of the unsung, more obscure titles, uh, the two Sergios, like Sergio Cabucci's Navo Joe in The Great Silence, and Sergio Solima's The Big Countdown and Revolver, as well as Mario Bava's classic Danger Diabolique, WFMU listeners, I know, of course, will be interested of the screening of the German TV program from 67 that features Morricone himself performing on trumpet unconventionally with Gruppo de Improvisazione Nueva Consonanza, the uh, experimental collective he had with other composer musicians starting back in 1964. Josh Siegel from MoMA Films, the curator for the, the film department there. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. This is in collaboration with Cinecitta Roma, which I should have said that right off the bat. But um, how did this collaboration come about and why now? We've been collaborating with Cinecitta for more than a decade at this point, um, having an annual collaboration of a particular filmmaker, a particular craftsperson, an actor. So it spanned everyone from Dante Ferretti to Claudia Cardinale, Ilio Petri, some of the great kind of unsung Italian filmmakers like Pietro Angeli, but then also, of course, some of the more well-known ones like uh, Marco Bellocchio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a relationship we cherish. They they trot out some of the great films from their library and restore them. So what's not to love? So at this point with Ennio Morricone, was it your idea or their idea? or You know, we we very rarely pay tribute to composers. I mean, we've done Corn Gold and a handful of others. Um, I've done shows. I did a big show on jazz scores. Uh, some years ago, and then one on kind of avant-garde, original avant-garde music scores from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but very rarely pay tribute to a singular master like Morricone, which is maybe our failing. But we had talked to Chinichita about paying tribute to Morricone, and um, 
given their own relationship with him going back many decades, it seemed most sensible. And then the Academy Film Archive is doing their version, their iteration of this series uh, in Los Angeles. But I really wanted to supplement it with a pretty significant addition of a lot of the less known films. I wanted to to kind of delve more deeply into some of the byways of his career and enable people to see some of the films on a big screen that they may only be able to see in bootleg form or they watch on their computers. And so I think that's why it's gotten to be, as you said, more than 35 films out of 500, to be fair. Yeah, that's uh, that's the daunting task. And one of my questions is just when um, he's known to have 400 to 600 you know, credits or film to TV credits, that number always is uh, debatable. I don't know. I see like an IMDb close to 600, you know. Where where do you even start when you start picking out what you need to see? I know you have to hit, get the hits, but then like some of these like deep cuts, you know, harder to see. Yeah, the deep cuts, as you say. I mean, I think part of it is what's available. You, you know, you, you make your wish list and then you look out, you start casting your net as widely as possible around the world for good copies, either films that have been digitally preserved or films in decent prints. So we're not really a grindhouse at MoMA, so we're not necessarily going to trot out as the great Quentin Tarantino would in uh, in his movie theater, a well-loved print, uh, if we can avoid it. So some of it is dictated by by what's available and also it involves a lot of um, negotiating for rights so chinatita has its selection of films that we work with them on and then as i said i wanted to supplement it so you know where do you begin you begin just by doing a lot of movie watching and a, li- a lot of listening in this case you know i was relying in some part on youtube and spotify or Quoba, as I should maybe give a plug to, uh, <laughs> to listen to some of his music that I didn't know about. And as you know, well, all too well, I mean, he was composing for other things, of course, besides cinema, television, pop music, but also for his own orchestral music. Right, yeah, what he refers to as absolute music. Did you personally go and revisit or visit for the first time, Some, in some cases, each and every one of these selections that made the retrospective? The ones that made the cut, absolutely. I mean, and you know, of course, some of them I know very well. We've managed to show uh, Once Upon a Time in the West now three years running. It's sort of amusing last year because of Claudia Cardinale. But no, I had the great pleasure. That's the fun part of the job. You watch a lot of movies and you just have major discoveries. I mean, films like The Big Gun Down is a fantastic film that I somehow had always missed. Yeah. And uh, it's brutal. I mean, some of these spaghetti westerns, deeply brutal and they're really really quite brilliant and for all their kind of marxist sympathies or you know sort of maybe perhaps a little dated late 60s early 70s kind of politicking they're as relevant now as they ever were in terms of their reflections on race on relationships between men and women the brutality of of humanity did you have any sort of eureka moment or a, a takeaway of Ennio Morricone's music specifically? You know, just him as a composer, say, compared to, you know, America's John Williams or Bernard Herrmann or some of the Golden Age composers. Is there something that just knocked you over the head? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about Morricone, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted with or the choir, as it were, <laughs> in your audience, is that, you know, he was made, he was incredibly gifted at wedding kind of classic orchestration and instrumentation to some of the more, you know, far-flung aleatory 
types of music, whether it's music concrete or, you know, surreality or free jazz or electronic technology. So it was that collision that I think really made him stand out among his peers, both then and even now. But I think that having been able to locate and secure this kind of amazing 1967 television program from Germany, in which you get to see him performing with Il Grupo, this kind of collective of composer musicians who would um, who would improvise and who have been captured in this documentary record. It's kind of extraordinary from the late 60s. Um, and then to be able to go see a film that they you can hear them perform in Elio Petri's um, Quiet Place in the Country is kind of one of the nice, you said a eureka moment, that's one of the nice things that we were able to pull off to be able to do that and to see his roots in experimental music. Yeah, I think he was constantly trying to find an outlet for that group of musicians to work their way into the scores and, you know, sometimes uh, to great acclaim and or um, like a great collaborations like Pasolini and then sometimes to his detriment, I think getting him <laughs> potentially fired from um, um, uh, Dario Gento, like I th I, there's kind of a, I guess in the book that came out, there's a story about how Dario's brother, who I think was a producer, thought that with this Il Grupo, he's sabotaging the movie. What are you doing with this music? You know, which, it, which of course, in hindsight, it works so perfectly. Is that is the Morcone family in any way involved? Yes, yes. The, the children are, are coming. I had a ch chance to meet um, his son who lives in New York, and um, they've obviously been very supportive of this. And as I said, the, the smaller show being done at the Academy, but they're very generous. And yeah, helping out. Um, what about, so when was the first time that Morricone came on your radar as that music, like in a young age or early, your early film going experiences? Or? You know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the first eight notes from Good, Bad and the Ugly is burnished into our collective unconsciousness at this point. I mean, it's hard to avoid even, you know, stumbling on it in a commercial or in, you know, in, um, it's as commonplace at this point as the, the title of the film itself, which has become almost a cliche. So I can't pinpoint the exact moment, but I certainly was watching some of these movies at an early age. And I saw certain films when they were coming out, like Once Upon a Time in America. One of the things that's really quite lovely about Morricone is that he had a wonderful sense of play, a sense of fun and joy. And I think he took joy in trying new things in all of his compositions, even when things that seem maybe all too familiar or a little bit maybe recycled from other scores he worked on, you still have this sense of what happens if I put together a um, and the sound of an organ with an electric guitar with a woman's kind of caterwauling with allusions to Mozart's Requiem. What happens? Right. <laughs> and I think that, that that is really what has been so meaningful to so many composers and musicians even today, people like John Zorn or obviously Metallica or Beastie Boys or Jay-Z or composers like Hans Zimmer who have spoken so eloquently about the influence of Morricone. And I think that, you know, that sense of play is what I find, you know, when you told, when you mentioned the the anecdote about um, Argento, I think that, you know, he did like to sort of provoke. And <laughs> and the one of the reasons he was so in sync with Sergio Leone is Leone was really beholden to him and his music in the way that he choreographed his films and he would play the music uh, in the background. It was one of these unusual cases where, you know, Morricone would often write the music before the film was even shot. 
And so he would write sort of program music, programmatic music for certain characters to kind of identify with and to kind of shape their character in some way. But then there's this famous story that he would kind of compose his music and Leone would like to extend these balletic violent scenes, um, almost overextend them because he loved the music so much and that the music was really what governed the pace and the mood rather than the other way around, which is the more typical way of going about things. And so I think it worked really well with some filmmakers who themselves were trying to experiment in new ways, like Leone was with the, the form of the Western, the genre of the Western. Mm-hmm. And Leone, of course, introduces the electric guitar, which is a you know completely anachronistic instrument in the in the the West of the nineteenth century. Um, but there is always this sense of play. And I also, sorry, I'm going on too long, but I would also say that um, it comes also from this the low budget aspect of of the films that they all got their start making. You know, you would work with this very tight group of musicians. You know, you would kind of expansively draw upon different kinds of instrumentation, but with a with a low budget film, you didn't have the you mentioned Herman or others. You didn't have these sweeping orchestral soundtracks that you could, or you know, entire symphony orchestras that you could draw upon for recording. That came later from Morricone, yeah. and what came before that were these tight knit groups, and I think that that's reflected in the films themselves. As far as I know, that's one of the first instances that I've heard of where the composer's music was being pre-composed and played on set and the actors were supposed to react to the music. I'm sure it's happened before, exactly. but but it's so, you know. I'm sure it happened in the silent era. I'm sure yeah. that, you know, I'm sure that Chaplin or someone like that, Chaplin who wrote his own music or, you know, they would have it in the background to kind of set the mood. But it isn't obviously the norm. And I think that even if it had been true of the silent era, for him to have taken it up again as a as a conceit, as a way of creating a kind of, as you said, mood or pace. Right. Is, and, and and I think that uh, it has to be the ultimate compliment, right? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. to the composer that your music is being treated so, you know, up, up in front and center, sometimes the music that they work so hard on just gets squashed or edited. Um, you can barely even hear it in the mix or whatever, and it's just so important. And really, is what makes some of those films, you know, just how great they are. Uh, they wouldn't be the same without the music like that. Is there one in particular that you're overly excited about? The, I guess it's like the big big gun down is one that you would advise people that have seen kind of the Man with No Name trilogy and whatnot that they should really seek out. Well, I think that, you know, I'm I'm hoping that there's plenty of people who've never seen a marathon of the the Man with No trilogy in one day on a big screen. <laughs> you know, you can, honestly you can't see them enough. I mean, but there are, you know, the the famous three Sergios. So the two less known Sergios who made great um westerns, Solima and Corbucci are I think, you know, obviously the the cult fans of this genre know these films very well but i don't think many people know film like the great silence for example or navajo joe even for all of its kind of political incorrectness it's really brilliant piece of filmmaking but i also think that it's fun to revisit films from this perspective of the music so if you watch a film like teorema you know pasolini and and um Morricone collaborated on uh, quite a few films, but if you watch it from that perspective, you get new insights into the way that they would collaborate and the way that music informed the the script, yeah, or the performances. And I think that this is one of the things. You know, I started up a series called The Craft, and so we're celebrating below the line talent, as it were. So I just did one with 
Ellen Lewis and Laura Rosenthal, the casting directors. And I did it because it not only is a way of acknowledging people who would otherwise probably not get their due, but also as a way of providing a new perspective on things that we all know very well. So Ellen is best known for her work with Scorsese. Laura is best known for her work with Todd Haynes. But what if you look at it from the perspective of a casting director and who can talk about how those films came about and what kind of conversations they had with the filmmakers? We're, you know, in our auteurist, we're habitually accustomed to thinking of things, of course, in terms of the filmmaker, the director. Right. But if you can actually bring in the voices of other people, you find you like Morricone, you find a whole new world opens up to you in understanding these movies. Yeah, these unsung heroes given their due. What about as from the curator per- perspective, how how do you go about uh, designing, I guess, the sequencing, uh, laying out the selection and arrangement from what is it, six weeks worth of films? Because uh, you don't just it's not chronological. How do, how do you start and end it? Because you end with a bang, you start with a bang, and there's there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, you you you. I'm working right now on our annual preservation festival, which is in its 20th year, and I'm thinking about that very question, you know, and you think about pairings. You don't think about it, of course, in a holistic sense, because it's not a gallery exhibition like my colleagues in other departments <laughs> would think about how photographs or paintings will look as you pass through a physical space. And, and you take in all of those photographs, at least fleetingly, as you walk into a room, right? You appreciate it in its um, totality before you look at each individual photograph. You can't obviously do that with a film series, but what you can do is create certain pairings mm. so that it, if you hope that the audience will come for the day or they'll come for an evening of two films and then they'll find some kind of affinities between those two. And then in the cumulatively, they'll watch these films and start making other connections that they wouldn't have otherwise. But obviously, you know, putting spaghetti westerns together or, you know, two films by Corbucci or, you know, Soliman, it's not rocket science, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's just quite logical. And they each get a second screening, right? For the most part? So everything twice at MoMA. So we try to show everything once in the evening or on a weekend and then once in the afternoon so that we can maximize the possibilities that people have to see these films. In the days sort of paired similarly to the first screening, I guess, so that yeah. you can see yeah. the Solima films together or whatnot. Yeah, although sometimes you do them differently, right? You sometimes pair them in one evening and then you pair make another pairing in a different evening. So again, trying to kind of elicit some sort of surprises or connections that people wouldn't have but made otherwise. Were you fortunate enough to... Uh, see Ennio Morricone perform live like like Radio City in New York oh I never did did you yeah yeah a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of times yeah I was actually at the last two in amazing Italy you know I know he did one Fantastic. more supposedly at United Nations or something I think that was like not you know not for the public but the last two public performances and it, it was incredible it was during one of those European heat waves where like during the day it was well over a hundred and like hitting 110 or something. And then at night it cooled down to like 91, but it's that super humid European 90. And he was conducting. He's conducting like in a full three piece suit for three and a half hours, you know, outside. It just, and it felt like that very last one felt almost like you were seeing Metallica. There were so many, so many people. It was like just crazy. (laughs) Amazing. You know, I think that's really, you know, I'm, I assume that you, you don't think about the heat when you're in the moment. You're thinking about 
the orchestra. Yeah, you're very worried. I mean, you're cognizant of the fact how hot you are, and then here he is under lights, yeah, working for three and a half hours in like a you know Italian suit and um and his age, you know. Well, whether it's five hundred or six hundred movies, I think we can safely <laughs> say it was a workhorse. Oh yeah, and then like towards the end, he was like on a world tour. It looked like so incredible. Anything else that um that uh, you'd want to highlight for the listening audience or otherwise? I know the. The FMU listenership, I'm pretty sure they're going to fill up your uh, El Grupo screening. <laughs> well, I hope so. Please come. And if you uh, if you like what you see, you know, become a member of MoMA and see. We show 1,300 movies a year or thereabouts. It's the best deal in town, to be honest. For If you're an artist listening right now or if you're a filmmaker, if you have an IMDb credit or if you're a designer, anything you get it's like i think it's like 35 bucks for a yearly membership at moma oh, really? and i get to, get to all the movies but also all the exhibitions so 35 bucks for 1300 movies is pretty good pretty good deal uh, <laughs> so yeah yeah. Well, yeah that was my shameless plug but i actually said it's said with great sincerity and passion well it's good to know i didn't know that well, yeah, I, th- I thank you so much for your time, and I, I look forward to seeing as many of these films as I can. Some will, will be for the first time, and some will be... Which ones have you not seen? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, I know. I've Perfect. somehow missed over the years. Yeah, that Splendid November, I love the music for that, but I, it's just mm-hmm. one I've, I've seemed to miss. There's a few in there. I hate to say it, The Mission is a film that I believe I saw like back in the eighties when it came out. But I, I really, really, really like on, on um, VHS or cable, you know, like those days. And um, it's, it's one that I really feel like I need to see properly in a theater, <laughs> you know, even though it's like, the, it's as, as biggest one, you know? You know, I mean, I don't know if to be totally honest myself, I mean, I'm not sure the film itself holds up, especially in this day and age and, you know, politically speaking. But the music, of course, is fascinating because of the way this kind of syncretic score where he weds kind of traditional instruments with, uh, you know, electric instrumentation is kind of miraculous. I mean, it's kind of... I mean, it's, yeah, it's one of those one of those scores that's like one of the first, you know, it's almost synonymous with uh, with his name when you hear, you know, almost as big as Good, the Bad, the Ugly. It's like one of the second yeah, exactly. third credits exactly. you'll hear <laughs> so anyway that's why I yeah, keep... and then there are the, out, the outliers i mean you asked me about some of the discoveries i mean there are outliers like desert of the tartars which um, you know it's almost like an existential score or or uh battle of algiers you know these are really interesting films because i mean battle of algiers you know the the history of the making of that film is fascinating in and of itself but to write a mute score for a revolution. Oh, yeah. Not in kind of a fantastical way, but a literal way is kind of quite a challenge. It constantly gets re-referenced with, you know, current events. Exactly. You know, throughout the world, that the film is just as uh, relevant <laughs> as when it was made. Um, I, I also should should note, too, before I let you go, uh, and for the listeners, just the opening weekend, just so to get everybody, get their appetites wet, <laughs> it, it appears to be the thematic... Uh, films of Giuseppe Tornatore, who is one of his close friends, right? O- opening night of Cinema Paradiso, which amazing. No, but actually in the hope that he would be able to come. That was the, that was actually, there was a reason behind that. Um, but he actually turns out to be shooting in Italy right now. Um, oh, we came pretty close to having him at MoMA. So that's why we kind of rolled the dice. Yeah. And so we're presenting that in the documentary that he made fairly recently of the last few years, few years ago about, 
Morricone just to kind of set the tone for the series and also, you know, orient people towards who, who Morricone was. And get, yeah, I think, again, get them kind of interested in figuring out which films they want and can see, you know, during the uh, the retrospective. It's, I mean, I think, because I did have a chance to see that, unfortunately not in a theater, so I know I want to experience in a theater loud and with the music really in your face and everything, but um, but I think that may be, that experience is the one where I'm like, you know, I really need to go revisit the mission because it's it it really seems to be an important film to him personally and to Italy in general. Like seeing him perform there many times, I don't know. I, I just want to go revisit it in the, in the context and preferably in the theater. You know, not good. Well, I look forward to not on a phone. <laughs> no, exactly. And I look forward to seeing you and your listeners in the in the audience. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, and um, hope to have you back for other uh, music related film series in the future and sure there's plenty with this game thank you for your interest and obviously thank you for your for your show because i mean your passion obviously goes back quite a ways and it's your dedication i'm sure the morricone family is also very grateful okay take care and thanks again take care yeah bye-bye